Let's pray. Father, help us now to uh, hear Jesus' words and to consider them, to understand them, and to see how they might shape what we do, what we think, what we feel, how we react to the things that happen to us today, tomorrow, next week, so that we might indeed be those who are the disciples of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a sermon about the strangeness of following Jesus. Why are we here, here in church today? Now, of course, you know, people may be here for all kinds of individual reasons. My friend invited me and here I am. Or I'm looking for a church to get married in or something else. It's great to have you. Welcome. But I hope that lots of us, and especially those of us who are here week to week and regularly, are here because we are following Jesus. That is central to our lives. That's something we wish to work at, to improve at. And so we're here for some help, some encouragement, some teaching, some guidance in that task of living as disciples of Jesus. Today, we're observing All Saints Day, which is a day to reflect on what it is to be a follower of Jesus, a believer, a disciple, one of the brothers and sisters, a saint, a Christian. And it's also a day to look around and remember that those uh, remember those who are our fellow saints, those who are our fellow believers, our fellow disciples of Jesus. The lectionary has given us Luke 6, 20 to 31 for this task of reflecting on these things. I hope you'll have that in front of you as we work through it together today. This passage from the Gospel of Luke, Luke 6, 20 to 31, is the beginning of an address that Jesus gave, Luke says, in the hearing of a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal regions around Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him. So a public setting, but many disciples present. And one thing this says to us, I think, is if we are a disciple of Christ, don't expect simple happiness as you follow Jesus. Don't expect simple happiness as you follow Jesus. Jesus begins talking to his disciples in this this strange, this paradoxical set of beatitudes, of blessings. He says, well, verse 20 says, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Now it's not obvious, is it, that the poor, the hungry, the weeping are blessed or happy, which is another way the Greek word makarios might be translated. Usually you would think the opposite, you know, blessed are the rich. Blessed are the well-fed. Blessed are the laughing. They are the happy ones. To reinforce his strange take on life, Jesus goes on with some woes. He says in verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. 
What are we to make of these strange, paradoxical beatitudes and woes? What are we, how are we to take this talk of poor and rich, hungry and well-fed, weeping and laughing? Are we to take these things at face value? And is Jesus basically saying to his disciples, you must become impoverished. You must become hungry. You must suffer in order to gain God's kingdom. Is that what he's saying? Well, there is a fourth beatitude that I haven't mentioned yet. And I think this one helps us to make sense of this language of poor, hungry, weeping. Verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. So the you who Jesus addresses in these Beatitudes is identified as those who are identified with the Son of Man, that is, with Jesus himself. The impoverishment, the want, the weeping are troubles that are faced by those who are perhaps hated, insulted, rejected because of the Son of Man. Jesus is setting an expectation for anyone who would follow him that hostility may follow. And that in this life you might, as a result, appear poor, not rich. You might appear hungry and not well fed. You might weep and not seem to laugh. But that's only one side of the paradox of these Beatitudes. The other side is that these poor, hungry and tearful are blessed, are happy and have every reason for joy. Blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you, for you will laugh. Rejoice in that day. That is the very day that you are hated and excluded. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. Part of this blessedness is that the disciple of Jesus has hope hope in their troubles that there will be, despite present difficulties, satisfaction. There will be laughter. There will be a great reward in heaven. But there's also a sense in which even now those (coughs) who follow Christ have a, a current blessedness, a current happiness, current joy. Blessed are you. Not blessed will you be, but blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Not yours will be the kingdom of heaven, but yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, lots of people are looking for simple happiness in this life. They say, and you may have said it, and I've said it to myself too, if only I could solve all my troubles. If only I could win lotto, you know, I could retire to the beach. If only I could fix my husband or wife, or get a better one. If only I could cure my ills. If only I could get my children sorted out. If only I could find a better job with a better boss, etc., etc. Then I'd be happy. Then life would be simple and great. Jesus calls his people to a more complex happiness, a blessedness that is real, but that exists alongside a kind of poverty, a kind of hunger, exists alongside tears. Christian can be hated, excluded, insulted, rejected, which hurts. And also rejoice in that day and leap for joy. 
How is this possible? Can I suggest it is because God has done something in the Christian. If we consider briefly our epistle from Ephesians 1, verse 13 and following, when you believed, Christian, you were marked in him, in Christ, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And Paul prays for his fellow Christians that this spirit would activate in in us. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. This Christian joy despite trouble, this Christian sense of external troubles and internal enlightenment to a a living hope is is evident often in stories from persecuted Christians. Here's a story from Umidah, a convert from Islam in Uzbekistan. I'm reading from the, the Voice of the Martyrs magazine from this month. When Umidah's brothers learned about her new faith, her Christian faith, they began to beat her. And her oldest brother took her Bible and buried it. Umida remained faithful, however, and soon obtained a new Bible from Olma, a Christian friend of hers. Determined to discourage their sister's newfound faith, Umida's brothers burned the replacement Bible. Continuing to destroy a total of six Bibles over the next several years by breaking into the locked box in Umida's room where she tried to keep God's word safe. Despite the frequent beatings and ridicule from her brothers, Umida continued to grow in faith. Eventually, after discovering that her brother's plan to make her marry a 78-year-old man and become his third wife, she decided to leave home. Umida then moved in with Olma and her husband, who discipled her for two months. When Umida returned to her hometown, she started visiting a nearby village where she drank tea with other women and shared the gospel. For ten years, I didn't laugh at all, she said. After coming to Christ... My heart was full of joy, and I wanted to share this joy with other people. Because of the difficulties Umida endured in her family, she relishes the opportunity to help younger Christians in similar situations. I know what persecution is, she said, and for this reason I like to pray for people who are in persecution, and I like to walk that path with them. There is a paradoxical external trouble, great trouble, Accompanied by internal joy. That's a contemporary testimony of a life of being hated and rejected on account of Jesus while also having a heart full of joy. Now it's simpler to fit in to the world around us, to pursue the simpler paths to happiness, to try for riches, to eat good lunches, to laugh and and seek good times to be well spoken of by all. But Jesus warns that this is a short-sighted approach to life which God will not reward. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort, which is not the comfort that God has for his people. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. It seems like the way to happiness, but it's not according to Jesus. Now, this is not to say that Christians cannot be rich. 
cannot eat well or laugh or be well spoken of. Rather, it's to say that these things, this pursuit of wealth and good, good meals and laughter, cannot be what the Christian life is about. A Christian is a prophet of Jesus, one who bears witness to him and his word, one who is bound up with Jesus and who serves him at the core of their lives. And true prophets are not universally popular because they will always have something to say, something to stand for that is confronting, that upsets the settled way of the world. It's the false prophets who have no enemies. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. That's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Now, because the disciples of Jesus will meet with hostility, Jesus teaches us how to respond to hostility. Verse 27, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. If verses 20 to 26 teach us not to expect simple happiness if we follow Jesus, then verses 27 to 30 teach us don't respond to mistreatment on account of Christ with tit for tat, but with a love that does not defend itself. So perhaps even stranger than Jesus' beatitudes and woes are his instructions, his exhortations here. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Many people have felt that the sane and reasonable way to live in this world is to do unto others what they do to you, otherwise known as tit for tat. Now, the philosopher Peter Singer, I don't know if you've heard of this fellow, he's an atheist and rationalist, he recommends this approach in his book, How Should We Live? And he expresses it like this. Do good to those who do good to you and harm to those who harm you. Singer explicitly rejects Jesus' teaching. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. He says this is bad all round. He says to be nice to someone who is not nice to you is to allow yourself to be a sucker. Now, in defence of Jesus, I would point out that he's giving instructions to those called to follow him and bear witness to him. He's not trying to lay down principles for law, government and society. But it is true that Jesus is not instructing his disciples according to a rational calculation about how to prosper here and now. If anything, he is quite obviously recommending something against common sense and ordinary reason. Something that, if it works, works according to some other principle than enlightened self-interest. There is something disorienting, something otherworldly and disturbing about people who love their enemies who do good to those who hate them, who bless those who curse them, who pray for and not against those who ill-treat them. By what power can they turn the other cheek? By what power can they give both cloak and shirt? By what power do they decline to demand back what is theirs? How can such people ride loose to everything the world holds dear? 
What hidden riches and joys compensate them for such losses? Christian, you and I are called to be such people. As citizens, we may by all means enforce contracts, prosecute thieves, protect ourselves from harm. Yet at the same time, as Christians, if anything becomes a matter of our belonging to Jesus, a matter of our witness to him before a hostile world, we will not insist on our rights. We will not repay tit for tat. We will not resist and protect ourselves in all circumstances. We will take this strange and paradoxical path that Jesus has for us. If we are to be deprived because we are Christians, we will bear it. We'll bear it without rancor, without retaliation, without a fight even, apparently. The power of the kingdom of God, our power, is a strength in weakness. It's a victory in defeat, like Christ's death on the cross. In his death, others had their way with him and he did not resist. And yet, in submitting to it, he reconciled the world and us to God. Now, Muslim Uzbekistan is one thing. Secularising Australia is another. Religious freedom is a hard-won and valuable possession. So let me finish the sermon by asking some questions. In light of all this, should we defend religious freedom? Should we fight for it tooth and nail? There are examples of certain individuals being excluded or insulted, even hated, on account of their Christian faith. These things come before us in our own society. How should we respond? Protest, fight, seek recompense, defend our honour? Jesus' words, the words we've read this morning, will always need to be our study, our guide, our help as we belong to him in a world that is and can become hostile to him anywhere, anytime. I leave these questions for our discussion. But let me leave you now with these words of Jesus. To you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. This is the calling that all we saints must take to heart and put in practice. Shall we pray? Now, Father, as we meditate on Jesus' strange beatitudes and woes and his confronting exhortations to us to love our enemies, give us, Lord, wisdom to know what to do with these things, to see how they fit in our lives as Christians, those who, by your Holy Spirit, have our hearts enlightened to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches we have in the glorious inheritance of the saints. And to know how to handle, Lord, hostility, opposition, those who are our enemies. 
Lord, teach us in all these things to resemble your son Jesus and to follow in his ways. We pray in his name. Amen.